Revelation 19. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn there. Because I just love this chapter, you guys. This chapter is about the Lord coming back, Jesus on that white horse, and setting up his kingdom on planet Earth. Now, while we're here on Earth, you guys, we're doing the best that we can to make it a, a good place. I mean, we're trying as, as a society, as a family, uh, we're trying our best, you know, through um, different avenues, uh, our prayers, even that our leaders, our governors, our politicians would be used by God to make this a, a good place to live in. And that's why it's so important we pray for our leaders, you know, that they would be led by the Lord. And it's so cool. I, to be honest, it's really, really cool when we have Christian leaders, you know. And so we'll do our best to make this world uh, a better place, so to speak, but you guys, you got to know this, man, that there is no man, there is no human being who can make this place what it really needs to be. You know, ultimately, take away all the hate, all the hate speech, all the hate crimes, you know, all the, the things that are going on in this world. And we're going to talk about some of the crazy things. I mean, every 98 seconds, there's a sexual assault somewhere in our country. You know, think about that. Every 11, every day, 11 Christians are slaughtered for their faith around the world. I mean, we're talking about things that are happening in this world that's crazy. And, you know, we're trying. And again, I'm not saying give up or anything like that. But I am just saying that ultimately we need to know that the Lord is the only one that's going to bring that peace. And so we're going to see that in Revelation 19. In one sense, we see three different things. Number one, we're going to see the Babylonian judgment and how God reigns, and it's kind of the end of evil, which is a really cool thing. Some people don't like judgment, but I like that whole concept of judgment because that means the bad gets dealt with. Um, the other night, someone was telling me about this guy. He was a husband, and he had two children, two daughters, and so he started having an affair, and so what he did was he killed his wife, and he killed his two little girls. Okay, so then, you know, they eventually the truth comes out. And so they go to court and he gets sentenced life in prison. And while he's in prison, he has a girlfriend and the girlfriend comes and they're with each other. If you know what I mean, every weekend. And that's his life. So he killed his wife. He killed his two girls. Now he's being supported by the government, probably having a pretty good time in prison while he gets to be with his girlfriend every weekend. Is that justice? Absolutely not. It's not. The world that we live in today is not just. But one day, justice will come. And all those murderers and all those rapists and all those incest and all the hate and all that craziness. The Bible, God says, vengeance is mine. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we don't have to repay. We don't have to get violent. That's not our job. One day, God will get violent. One day God will eradicate all the evil and he'll wipe out this world of wickedness. And that's what Revelation 19 is all about. And to me, it makes a lot of sense. And so three reasons to rejoice. Number one, the Babylonian judgment. Number two, the bride of Christ. And it's kind of cool. We as a church, we're the bride. We're going to get married. Right now we are engaged. We are betrothed. But the day will come when the marriage is consummated. And so it's going to be a special day, you guys. That's going to be us. We rejoice over that, the Babylonian judgment, the bride of Christ, and then the battle of Armageddon. And so we'll see that in today's study. 
Beginning in verse 1, notice it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation, and glory, and honor, and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And so it, basically John sees his vision in heaven and this is this sound um, like, have any of you guys ever gone to the Niagara Falls? You know, the six million cubic uh, feet of water that come cascading, cascading down those falls every single minute. Imagine the, the, the sound of that, the, and then the, the thunder. You know, you guys have probably gone to maybe a football game, whatever, 100,000 people, the roar of the crowd. I mean, we're talking, you know, billions of people just praising God because the bad is going to be dealt with. It's a really good reason to. You know, um, like I was saying earlier, for whatever reason, some people don't like the judgment of God, but we're going to see it's a really, really good thing. Reasons to rejoice. Number one, the judgment of the great uh, Babylon. And we saw that in chapter 17 and chapter 18, so this kind of picks up on that. Uh, it was mentioned in the previous chapters as well. And so the evil empire is coming to an end. The root of rebellion is about to be uprooted wickedness wiped out, and therefore we have this loud multitude of people rejoicing. You know, for us, it's so cool to know that God is one day going to bring justice. You know, some people don't like the concept. I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, some people don't like the idea of vengeance or judgment because they think that would be an unloving God. I hear people say, God is too good to punish sin. No, God is too good not to punish sin. See, even within us, and we're all messed up, you guys know we are fallen creatures, we know that that man who killed his wife and his two children is not receiving justice. And how many people do those kinds of things and they never even get caught? See, God, one day, he's going to deal with all these things. There's a really good proverb that helps us understand the justice of God. In Proverbs 28, verse 5, it says, Evil men do not understand justice but those who seek the Lord understand all. And so when I look at the world today, to be honest, I see the world is very, very broken. Like I said earlier, every 98 section, seconds, a sexual assault occurs in our country, and that includes children. Every day, there are well over 1,000 murders throughout the world. Add that to the 125,000 babies that are slaughtered every day. 132 people take their lives in suicide every single day in our country alone. Over 2,000 commit suicide every single day in the world that we live in. 
As I mentioned earlier, 11 Christians every day in different countries. And in the world today, 260 million Christians are being persecuted. And I was reading stories about what they're going through. Uh, you guys, man, we live in Disneyland. It is crazy what is happening to Christians. And they're being transported. And you try to go to, you know, you try to have a, a, an honest Bible study in North Korea. I mean, it ain't going to happen. We're talking about different countries, Pakistan, Iran, where you can't, it's, a, it's illegal to proselytize or preach. You, know, you got people being transported in little boxes from different sections to different sections in the countries that are uh, against Christians. And so, you know, we got the disease that we're dealing with. We have depression, death, failure, and the falling apart of the family. You know, in Canada today, if your little boy wants to be a little girl and you as a parent say, no, he's only in fourth grade, I think we need to wait at least until he's 18 to make a decision, then you as a parent are committing a crime. This is where our world is headed and it's being put, it's being accelerated. And, then, and so man, man's not going to stop it. Our world is broken. Our world is very broken. And in one sense, again, not that I'm giving up, you guys. We can't. we got to fight. But I believe that in many ways it's time for a new world. It's time for a new world. I mean, you know, sometimes we get our car and we take it to the mechanic because he can fix it and this, that, and the other. But eventually, you know, it's like you got to get rid of the car. It's got to go in one sense to the junkyard and it's time for a new Tesla. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're, we're the world that's coming. The world that's coming where we will live with God and no more sin or sickness or death or devil or disease or hate, it's going to be awesome. You know, no more, and I, and I just even hate who I am apart from Christ. Me, just the flawed man that I am and the failures that I have, there, there'll, there'll be no more, none of that. So, so what we're talking about right here, the reason they're rejoicing and it sounds like the Niagara Falls and it sounds like, you know, thunder and it's so loud, they're just rejoicing. Not that people are being punished necessarily. Not necessarily that people are being you know, dealt with like that and they will perish. No, the, the real reason is because it's the eradication of all evil. And that's why they rejoice. Again, I'm not giving up, you guys. We still got to fight for our families and fight for our, our country. But I am looking up. And there's about to be an invasion from outer space. I can't say for sure when, but I believe it seems to be coming soon. Jesus is about to wrap things up. He came the first time as a lamb. He comes the second time as a lion. He came the first time as the savior. He comes the second time as the judge. He came the first time and he rode in on a donkey. He comes the second time on a white horse. He came the first time for peace. He comes the second time for punishment. You know, and we got to make sure that we understand these things. The, the truth is, when we look at this and the reason they're rejoicing and it's so loud, look at verse 2, if you would, again. For true and righteous are his judgments. You see, Babylon, which is symbolic of all that's bad, and it will escalate during the last days, and especially during the tribulation period, uh, Babylon is the root of all rebellion, and Babylon will be guilty of the slaughter of God's people in many ways, you know, when John wrote Revelation, uh, there were probably around 6 million Christians who were being martyred during that era. Remember, John 
was put in oil, boiling oil. He survived it, but the other apostles didn't. They were all uh, executed. And so it's something that's continued throughout the ages. And so right here we see justice is served. You know, notice again, we read in verse 3, again they said, Alleluia. Alleluia. Now real quick, just in case you guys didn't know, um, and I thought it was interesting when I first found out, this is the first time in the New Testament that the word Alleluia is found. You know, I, I know we, we've heard that word a lot, and if you read the Old Testament, you find it, you know, everywhere. In the Old Testament, it's Hallelujah. So, because it comes from the Hebrew word Halal and the word Yah. And so it just basically means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, and it's a beautiful word that's transliterated into every single language in the whole wide world. So you can go anywhere, and if you were to say hallelujah or hallelujah, they would know what you're saying. Praise God, right? Two words that are transliterated in every language, hallelujah and amen. So the interesting thing is this. It's the first time it's found in the New Testament, but it's found four times in this chapter alone. And so what, what, what we're saying is reasons to rejoice. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The end of evil. And that's what we see here. You know, when you look at this, it just blesses your heart to know that one day God will wrap all things up. I read a story about two Christian men from two different countries who were on a ship. And they decided they needed to get away from the crowd to meditate for a little while. And so each man, they took his Bible, and they started walking around the deck on that ship. And they saw each other, and then they saw the Bibles in their hands, and they knew they couldn't understand because they spoke different languages, but they knew there was another way to communicate. And so one of the brothers said, Hallelujah. And the other brother said, Amen. <laughs> and I, you know, when I think of the Lord coming... I, I just say, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, man. And that's a reason to rejoice. I read another story uh, recently about a, a, a young man who was learning to fly a single-engine airplane, and it was time to do the landing phase of the instruction. And so the instructor said, are you ready to go down? Let's do this, uh, the man responded. And so the plane began to descend, and the instructor looked over at the young man, and he was cool and calm. And there wasn't a sign of nervousness about him, no sweaty palms or biting of the lip. And the instructor thought, this boy would make a great pilot. So the plane descended, and suddenly it hit the ground with a thud, and it bounced 50 feet into the air, and it hit the ground again and bounced off the runway where it finally stopped. And the instructor said, son, I've been teaching for a long time. And I believe that is the worst landing ever done by a student pilot. And he said, me? He said, I thought you were the one landing the plane. <laughs> and, and for me, I'm like, okay, Lord, um, I don't even want to be co-pilot, but I am glad that you're the one that land, landing the plane. Lord, that when we talk about this whole reason to rejoice, when we talk about the Babylonian judgment, he reigns and it makes me praise him. The second thing we see here is uh, that he redeems. And we read next in verse 7 of Revelation 19. 
And it says, uh, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. You know, the second reason to rejoice after the judgment of Babylon is the bride of Christ. And here we have the marriage of the Lamb. Of course, the, the bridegroom is in reference to Jesus, who's called that in Luke chapter 5, verse 34, and John chapter 3, verse 29. And so currently, uh, according to eschatology, and really in terms of relationship, the church is betrothed to Jesus. We're not yet married to him. You know, the best is yet to come. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the fact that we've been sealed, and that word is used of an engagement ring. And so in one sense, we have an engagement ring. Uh, we have not yet consummated the marriage. And that's a pretty interesting concept. You know, that day is coming. Uh, I'm thinking about a wedding that we have coming up uh, pretty soon here at the church, and I'm really excited about that, you know? But, but you know, uh, when we think of the wedding of Christ, the, it's just something that just blows our mind, this, this marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to be talking about. You know, and some would say, well, are you sure it's going to happen? I mean, absolutely. Do you think that the Lord would be one of those guys who proposes but doesn't follow through? I mean, the incarnation without the coronation, without this consummation, would be like the East without the West. He, we are betrothed to him. In the Jewish culture, when they had the betrothal, it's different than our engagement. You guys know that, right? You know, the, they would usually arrange the marriages, and then eventually things would get closer, and then the, you know, the bride and the groom would talk about marriage. They still didn't have the day. Um, but now there's that betrothal period. And so sometimes it would be longer. You'd never know. You read Matthew chapter 25. You guys remember the parable of the ten virgins and the whole wedding feast and that whole thing? They didn't know when it was going to happen. All they, had to, all they knew was that it was a certain season, but they didn't know the exact day. So they always had to be ready. And so when the groom, bridegroom would come, then they would have the wedding, and then there would be a seven-day feast. You know, for us, we have our, our receptions, and usually it's a few hours of dancing and rejoicing and feasting and having fun. But the Jews, they knew how to party, man. And for the Jews, it was seven days. Seven being the number of perfection, man. For them, they just knew how to do these things. And for us, what we see is that's what's going to happen when the Lord returns for his bride. I believe, because some people, there's different views on this. I believe that we're the bride. The church is the bride. Old Testament saints are kind of like married to the Father. It's a little different. They'll be there. Others will be invited. But the church is the bride. We're the bride of Christ. And it was going to be a seven-year celebration. That's the whole time, and this is kind of interesting, the whole time during the tribulation period going, down, going, on, going down on earth, there's going to be the seven-year celebration in heaven. And so it's crazy when you think about things like that. But this is what we see here. 
In Genesis chapter 24, you guys may have remembered as you've gone through that section of the Bible, it was when Abraham was looking for a bride for his son Isaac. And you guys remember he sent a servant. The Bible doesn't say clearly what the servant's name was. All we know is he went looking for a bride. When he brought the bride, Rebecca, back to her husband, think about this. She never even saw him. She didn't see him until the wedding day. And that is a whole, it's a whole picture of us. How the Father has sent the Holy Spirit to get a bride for his son. And we've never seen him, but we love him. And the day that we see him, we will marry him. And that's what this whole thing is about, this reason to rejoice you know, the reason to rejoice is this, because although we've already experienced many of the blessings of being betrothed to Jesus and having this relationship with him, the whole Bible is a love story. And the day that we get married is kind of like the day that a husband brings his bride into his life. It's a different life. And it's at that moment that they really begin to celebrate that love. And that's what we have in front of us. We have that, that reason to rejoice. You know, it's interesting, the Lord even described the entire kingdom of God in that setting. He said in Matthew 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. I mean, it's like the, this is what it's all about important for us to know this love story. There will be a, a wedding day where we begin the rest of our lives literally living happily ever after. We have reason to rejoice. We're the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And that's why we read in Ephesians 5.25, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, and that's why it's so cool when you know the scriptures. You know, the passage here is not only a lesson for husbands to do. It's also a lesson of what the divine husband has done. And so we read here to, to be glad, to rejoice, to give God glory. The wedding day will come and we, the church, will wear white. Notice again what it says there in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and, and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in the fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, weddings are beautiful, huh? You know, and especially, and I know there's different views on this. Some say, well, the focus of this wedding is the bridegroom. And it, it probably is. I don't want to take away from that. Of course, the focus of, of, of life is Christ. But I tell you what, man, um, you go to a wedding, those brides are beautiful. I mean, they're just, it's, they're stunning. It's to see them walk through those doors or wherever it might be. And I, and, I, and I just think, because God is so gracious, that that wedding, there's going to be something special about the bride, too. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know what it's like, because I was a, a groom, and mine was really easy. I just rented the tuxedo, right? I had to do my hair, but not a whole lot. 
Um, but for the bride getting ready, um, it's just a whole process, huh? It takes not just one day, but many days. Um, recently, we're, we're kind of interacting with a bride who's getting ready and, you know, certain foods that she can't eat, right? Because they have to watch their figures and whatever. You got to get the dress. And then even on that day, I bet you got to get your makeup done and, and your hair done and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of cool. You know, for us, we got to kind of see our Christian life that way right now. What, what it says right here is this bride, she made herself ready for that day. And we should be doing that, you know, because the, the wedding day is coming. You know, you want to make sure that you can fit into that dress, guys. I'm just, you know, I'm saying we have to make sure that we're ready. Right here, it talks about the, 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 what's granted to us, verse 8, and it was to her granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, when you look at this right here, I mean, to be ready, I know some will say, well, just got to be a Christian. And maybe you're right. Maybe that's all it is. But, but when you read this, if you're honest and you know a little bit about the Bible, it seems like there's more to it than that. Not just the imparted righteousness of Christ, but the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not just the way that he's worked for us, but in, I think in one sense, what, how we can work for him. I think there is that aspect. And that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so Paul, as a leader, he was just saying, Hey, I know that you know I'm going to have to present you to the Lord and so when he's talking to them in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he's just encouraging them to wear white. He's encouraging them to be pure. And as we're looking forward to this wedding day, I think that we got to have that in our heart. You know, of course we know it's all the Lord. He's going to do it. But I think we have to yield to him. And that's why, again, going back to the Ephesians passage in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so what Jesus has done for the church is first of all, he died for the church. He, died, he gave himself for her, that he may earn the right to do what? To wash her in the water of the word. And that's why it's so important, you guys, that we're in the word and we let him wash us in the water of the word, you know, to study the Bible, you know, because it's a living word, it's a working word, it's a washing word. It says, as he does that, and as God uses that, John 17, 17, Jesus said, you know, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The power of the Bible to make us ready for that day as we learn it and, and live it, then the righteous works and acts of the saints. And then it says that he may present her to himself, a glorious bride. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Imagine that, ladies, no wrinkles. No spots, a glorious thing without blemish. And so for us, uh, it's a beautiful thing. We see here in verse 9 that it's a supper feast. 
that lasts seven days. It's seven years of tribulation. And notice again what it says in verse 9. You guys, we're going to be there one day. We're going to be there. Whatever you do, don't allow the enemy to make you doubt in any way. This is going to happen. All the bad will be eradicated. God's going to judge Babylon. We rejoice over that. We rejoice over the fact that we have a bridegroom. We're the bride. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. You know, this is, this is, this is a fact. It's the truth. We'll be there one day. And so, three reasons to rejoice. Number one, the Babylonian judgment, he reigns. Number two, the bride of Christ, he redeems. And then number three, the battle of Armageddon, and he returns. And so we read in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. And so when this whole thing is going down, remember we read in the very beginning, John said that uh, the Jesus gave it to his angel to give to John. And so for the most part, you're going to see oftentimes an angel is the one that's communicating these things to John. Sometimes Jesus does, but you know, usually we have the angel. And so right here, John, he fell at his feet to worship him and I think that we see that throughout the scriptures. Even Daniel did something similar. Um, angels are, are glorious, right? But here the angel sets them straight, and that's one of the things we see in the Bible is that godly men and all God's angels never receive worship. In the book of Acts 10, 26, Peter, when he was with Cornelius and his family, they fell down and worshiped him. Peter said, get up off your feet. I'm just a man like you. See the same thing in Acts 14, 14 through 15. And we'll see it again in Revelation 22, 8 through 9. Colossians 2, 18 says we don't worship angels. Okay, so we have to make sure that we understand that. But just in case you're reading this and you're thinking, well, is this a Jesus and he didn't receive worship? No, it's not Jesus because Jesus did receive worship. When you read Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they came and they worshiped him. When you read Mark chapter 5 and verse 6 and Luke chapter 24, Verse 52, and many times, John 9, 38, we saw it even back in Revelation 5, 13 through 14. In Matthew 14, 33, when Jesus stilled the storm with just his word, when he said, quiet, be still, and there was this peace. We read it in Matthew 14, 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So if Jesus wasn't God, he would have set him straight right there. But he received worship because we know what the Bible clearly teaches, that there is one God and three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in essence and nature, but not in function and office. And they're all worthy of worship. And so uh, what we find right here is as John, you know, worships the angel, it, it, it may be a good thing that this is recorded for us because what the angel then did is he set him straight. And he says, no, no, listen, this whole thing that I'm giving to you, this whole you know, book of revelation is about pointing people to Jesus because he's the mediator between God and man. 
the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. That's why I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said this, do you know what the spirit of prophecy is? Jesus Christ. So many people get overly concerned about the meaning of the third toe on the left foot of the second beast, and every detail is inspired and important, but don't miss the spirit of prophecy. If you read Revelation and don't come to know and love Jesus more, then you've missed it all. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling of Christ. And that's why we read that right here as he, you know, they, John's dealing with this whole guy and he says, no, this is all about Jesus. And so we read in verse 11. This is so cool, man. This is so cool. Verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's us, white and clean, they followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is why in this chapter four times, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah. With, with praise, it is so loud, it sounds like Niagara Falls and, and thunderous praise. Why? Well, because number one, the, the Babylonian judgment, that evil ends. Number two, because the, battle, the, the bride of Christ, when, when our love is consummated. And then number three, because of the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus returns. Now, you notice a few things, and there's so much here. I, I can't cover everything, but I do encourage you guys, when you have the opportunity to read it and meditate on it and study it, you know, even for the rest of your life, because this is Jesus coming, you know, to rescue us. We see, first of all, his transportation in verse 11 is a white horse. And so this would obviously be him coming in purity and power to conquer you remember the first time Jesus came on a donkey, and that would be symbolic of someone coming. I'm not coming for war. I'm coming for peace. And that's when Jesus presented himself to the world 173,880 days after uh, the Bible says the 70th with 69th week of Daniel would end. And so, you know, when you look at this, we see Jesus coming on a white horse. After his transportation, we see his titles. We see in verse 11 that he's called faithful and true. And when the, uh, John was writing to the, to the churches, that's the way he described Jesus as the faithful and true witness. I mean, he came and he told the truth. We see another title he has right here is the word. There in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. I mean, this is Jesus, and John is the one that uses that title, the Logos. And we know what a logo is. It represents. 
And that's what Jesus did. He represented God. He is the expression of God. He gave the word of God. He's also called here the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so for us, in looking at his titles, so you guys know this, that we have kings, um, but he's the King of Kings. And we have lords, but he's the Lord of Lords. And I love the way that it's tattooed on his thigh right there, man. It's so cool. I mean, can you guys visualize this? Because did you know that the Bible says that when he comes, every eye will see him? Can you visualize him on that horse coming, leading the way with all the Christians behind him? I tell you what, man, I, I look at the world and I see the pain and just the craziness. And, and like I said earlier, you know, I, I'm going to try. We've got to try to make this world a better place. We can't give up. But I just know that there's no king, there's no lord, there's no man, there's no, no one who can fix this world. We need a new world. And that's why he's coming. And he's coming to set up his kingdom. And that's the cool thing that we're going to see. We see his transportation. We see his titles. We see his physical traits, how he has these eyes that sees and scrutinizes and sentences. He has this clothes, if you can visualize it. It's dipped in blood. His clothes are dipped in blood. And so there's two uh, views as far as what that means. Um, I think one of the obvious ones is the fact that he's coming, and he's coming to do judgment, right? We read in Isaiah about the, the judgment of God in Isaiah 63, verse 14. And it's been, you know, even here it talks about he tramples the winepress of the fury of the, the wrath of Almighty God. And so in this last battle of Armageddon, if you go to Israel, you get to see the whole valley of Armageddon right there. And it's just this huge battlefield. Uh, Napoleon called it the greatest battlefield on, the, on earth. And it's going to be filled four feet high with blood. Now, I don't know for sure exactly how it's going to happen because he does have a sword in his mouth. And I don't know if he's going to slice them all up or I don't know if it's just going to be like the word is just like die and they all die. But I do know this, that the birds of the air are going to come and they're going to feast on their bodies. And so the robe that's dipped in blood, maybe it's in reference to the fact that he's going to, to kill them. But I kind of lean more towards the, the, the blood symbolic of his own blood. And it could be both, but I think it's his own blood, that, that blood that he shed on, on Calvary, where it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's probably what it is. I don't know. But what if he wears his blood? It says in Revelation 12, I think it's verse 11, and they overcame him, the enemy, by the the blood of the Lamb. And so it's cool when you look at his titles and you look at his transportation, you look at his, his physical traits, his eyes, his clothes, his mouth where he has this, law, this sword that comes out. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth 
and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the Bible says in 11, Isaiah 11, 4, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And you know, I don't know for sure how it's all going to like actually go down, but I keep going back to that story when Jesus was in the boat, and you guys remember how it just got so crazy in the storm, and they were sinking, they're like, Lord, don't you care? Wake up and save us, and the Lord just got up and he just said, peace, be still. And suddenly there is this peace um, on that lake that just stilled every storm. I, I don't know, maybe it's going to be as swift as that. I know his task here is to strike and to rule. Notice again what it says right here. It says in verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So he comes to strike, and he comes to rule. Now recently we saw what went on in Washington, D.C. You guys remember, as far as the transfer of power, it's not always that easy. But this will be the ultimate transfer of power. And Jesus will come and he will rule the whole earth, it says, with a rod of iron. And what that means is that when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, it doesn't mean that everybody's a robot. It doesn't mean that everybody's a puppet. You're still going to have a free will. Those people that have survived the uh, a tribulation period will enter into the millennial kingdom and they will multiply and people aren't going to be dying. It's going to be a, an amazing thing when Jesus rules during the millennial kingdom. And the Bible talks a lot about that thousand year reign of Christ, but he's going to rule with a rod of iron and people will still have a free will. And if anyone gets out of line, boom, he's going to deal with it justly. And we, the church, are going to be ruling with him. And so we'll be spread out around the world and God is going to rule for a thousand years. We see his transportation, his titles, his physical traits, his task, and then his team that we will come with him. And so again, like I said, can you visualize Jesus coming on the horse? We're coming behind him. He's got the sword coming out of his mouth. I have a hunch that we're not going to have to do a lot of fighting. Now, I know some of you here get disappointed by that, that you're like, no, but I wanted to swing this sword. Listen, it won't be necessary. I have a hunch that after that whole war is done, that our, our linen is still going to be so clean. I don't know for sure. Maybe we will uh, fight. I don't know, maybe, but I have a hunch that it all happens by him. First Thessalonians 3.13 says, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and his Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so in one sense, if you're wondering, well, how's it all going to go down? You know, when we get raptured, and that might happen any day, but when we get raptured, then somehow, real quick, there's what's called the Bema Seat Judgment, where we're judged, not necessarily for our sins, that's a different thing for the non-believer, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the Great White Throne Judgment, but we're judged for our, the motives of our works, not just what we did, but why we did what we did. And that then will be the basis of our reward forever. Then you've got the seven-year marriage supper of the Lamb. So we get married, the wedding day, this love relationship is consummated in one sense, 
And then we have seven-year celebration. Right after that, you guys got to saddle up your horses, and then we're coming back down, and we're coming back with Jesus. And, and something, that, and if you believe in God, if you believe in God, then you got to know that this is what he's always wanted. He's always wanted peace on earth. He's always wanted just justice on earth and love on earth. And of course, we know after a thousand years, it's not over yet. There's still one more final rebellion that needs to be dealt with. But this is where we're headed. This is what God has always wanted. And so we see it happening. Jude 14 and 15, it talks about us coming back with Jesus as well. And then we see his triumph, how the rider on the white horse, uh, Jesus Christ, comes and conquers forever and ever. Sandy Adams said something helpful. He said, Revelation chapter 19 describes the climactic conclusion to a galactic battle. Waged in heaven, resumed on earth, won at the cross, resisted through the ages, the war between God and Satan winds up for its grand finale in the Valley of Megiddo. It has been a long time since this wicked world has seen the Lamb. What a surprise to hear him roar like a lion. And so we have our final word here in verse 17. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Can you imagine that? I mean, Satan is just like, I, uh, he's going to fight it tooth and nail. He's going to fight it. He's going to lead these rebels. In verse 20, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who worshipped the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And what we find, and I shared with you guys many times, is that God wins. God wins, and we're on his team. This is the account of the Battle of Armageddon. It was kind of touched on in Revelation 14, 14 through 20, and Revelation 16, 12 through 16, where the armies of the world gathered together in this plain of Jezreel, this valley of Megiddo, and where we find the Battle of Armageddon. It's not really much of a battle. You know, the Lord just speaks it, and it's all over. Just like he did when he made the world. You guys know that he spoke the world, the world into existence by the power of his word, let there be light. He spoke everything into existence, right? And just like he made everything, and he maintains everything by his word. That's what the Bible says. It's all by his word. And one day he will conquer the world the same way. You know, what we find, I, I like what John Corson said, and it's kind of interesting. He said, here's the question. Would you rather have dinner or be dinner? <laughs> I'd rather have dinner. Uh, I believe in the love of God. I believe in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away my sins. I believe that God made me, and my sin separated me from him. But he came to rescue me 
And he died on the cross. And I know what he said in the new covenant. I know what he said as he offers anyone salvation. He says, it's not by works, because we'll never be good enough. It's not by our own righteousness, because our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It's when we understand that he's God, not me. That he makes the rules, not me. That he's king, not me. I'm his creature. I'm his son. And I love him. And this is what we have to look forward to. As a result of that, this is our future. And one day, there'll be no more sin or suffering or sickness or death or disease or hate. It's going to be so cool what God does. The evangelist Paul Rader, he said this, We are living so close to the second coming of Jesus Christ that I can hear the tinkling of the silverware as the angels are setting the table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think that's so true. We rejoice. And I think we can do that today, you guys. We can rejoice by faith. Because we know the Babylonian judgment is coming. The bride of Christ, it's real. And the battle of Armageddon is right around the corner. The question is, like it says right here, the bride made herself ready. She was ready. Will you be ready? Are you ready if Jesus Christ were to come today? You read Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and you're going to find this, that the one thing you need is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life when we become a Christian, and the Holy Spirit comes upon our life when we yield ourselves to him. And so by the Holy Spirit, by that oil, we can be ready. And so when he comes, I pray, the Bible says, occupy till I come, that we keep doing what he's called us to do, knowing that that's our job, that's our responsibility. These are our roles, these are our titles, our tasks, because I know God wants us not only to be ready, but he wants us to help others to be ready.